0: I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film Descendant.
1: There's a story there worth sharing with the whole world. And I would love to find the ship to enshrine it, but I, I don't need the proof. i live with the proof all of my life.
0: Today, we're talking to director and producer Margaret Brown. The Clotilda was the last known ship to arrive in the United States, carrying enslaved Africans decades after slave importation was outlawed. The ship was burned and sank somewhere in the Mobile River, while its passengers would later settle in the community of Africatown. In the century that followed, the descendants of the Clotilda struggled to preserve their heritage and live life in an Alabama town encircled by industrial property owned by the descendants of the slave owners. As a renewed effort to find the missing wreck gets underway, the community grapples with the implications of its discovery and what kind of justice it may or may not bring.
1: See, that's that's what people don't understand. It's about these dirty little secrets. When you raise that quotilla, oh my God.
0: And I'm joined by director and producer Margaret Brown. Margaret, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Oh, thank you for having me. So what made you so interested in this story as a documentary topic? How did you get involved? I'm
2: from Mobile, Alabama, and um, I made a film 15 years ago called The Order of Myths. And when I was making that film, my mother said to me, or this is how I remember it, at least, that I was making this film. It was about segregated Mardi Gras in Alabama. And my mother said to me, this is in 2007, the white Mardi Gras queen that year was from this family called the Mayer family. And that family was thought to, you know, be the family that brought the last slave ship to the United States in 1860. So when she told me that, I had no idea that that fact would end up like permeating my life for like (laughs) the next 15 years. Um, But I just was like, okay, you know, I clocked it kind of. And um, and then. After Mardi Gras was over, when we were filming, I was having, we were shooting with the black Mardi Gras queen and her grandparents, Stephanie Lucas and her grandparents. And we were talking about this ball that both Mardi Gras queens had been at. And very casually, Stephanie's grandfather said, oh, my people were on her people's ship. And we realized that Stephanie was a Clotilde descendant. Hmm. And we realized the two queens were connected that year in two thousand seven by on on two family lines on on around the Clotilda, and the ground kind of shifted under us. Um, and we the the whole part the whole movie kind of changed in that moment um, and reoriented around that fact. Yeah, so then eleven years later, people were sending me articles that the Clotilda had been found. It actually wasn't the Clotilda; it was a ship the community calls the No Tilda. But yeah so I I was getting emails from people in mobile saying are you coming back to film and I was like uh no like I I don't think most documentaries have sequels like I'm not you know but then um I started hearing things about the community that sort of things the the way the press was supporting it there was a different story underneath and I got curious and around that time I met with my longtime producer Lewis Black at I we had breakfast in LA And he I told him what was going on. And he was like, you have to go. You have to just see if there's a story there. So he kind of just like handed me a check and put me on a plane.
0: Hmm. So Descendant has been making the rounds in the festival circuit before hitting Netflix. What has
2: the response been like? I mean, um, it's been pretty amazing. Um, It's I think it's a very emotional film. And yeah, I mean, I think I because the film team has been living with it it's sort of gratifying to see the emotions we've all been feeling like spread and other people get to experience what it's like to hear the stories of that community. It's been really powerful for us.
0: I have to ask you because you're a white filmmaker and the story is about the experience of a black community that was unable to tell its story for a hundred years. And there is a theme in the film of who is getting to tell this story now? You know, at one point, mm-hmm. you know, the National Geographic folks come in and they say, we're finally getting to tell this untold story. And you see people in the room looking at each other like, what do you mean untold? It was almost like this moment We're like, we've been telling this story.
2: Yeah, um, completely. Can you just
0: talk about, you know, what that experience is like being a white filmmaker and acknowledging those sensitivities and making sure that that thread is a part of this film?
2: I mean, it's totally fraught. And there were definitely many mo- moments making the film where I was like, Am I supposed to be doing this? And the answer in my mind was no. But I also came back. So the way the film started was when I did fly to Alabama, I knew I had something that no one else had. Um, I'm from there. And I also had access to the Mayer family. Um, They had spoken to me. They had um, Helen Mayer had literally been a star in another film I'd made about the Clotilda So even though that family was not speaking to the international press, like the New York Times, The Guardian, you know, anyone who asked, and it was everyone was asking to get a statement from them. I knew that like, I did have access, they had talked to me in the past, and that was something no one else could get, like one side of the story. You know, I also knew that in Africatown, I had access to that community from relationships I'd made from years ago you know, and I thought like, well, you know, I can, I can go back to those people. But what I didn't realize five years ago was that this time the mayors wouldn't talk to me. And I, you know, I just, in my hubris, I thought they would talk to me. And I thought a lot of other white families in power would talk to me and I would have that access because I'm from Mobile and I'm white. It turned out not to be true, but it also turned out that the, these, this community of you know, people who have been passing down a story for 160 years—they're really good storytellers. And I think I wasn't quite counting on how much I'd realize they—they—they they, they absolutely should be centered. I mean, of course, like it is a black story, and it, and it became that even more so when the white families wouldn't talk to me. But at a certain point, it was just super obvious that like this was the way to center the story. It wasn't my story; it was their story you know and um you know and I still have questions about my authorship and I think that's a healthy thing to do but I also think that white people um should tell stories about slavery from their perspective but you know I also think for this particular story I felt it felt it was very important to frame it in a way that is for everybody and that involves like you know being humble listening to ways that like you might not even realize you're centering whiteness little things that you're doing that center whiteness when, you know, just trusting people who have different perspectives, who can help you make it for everybody. And that also includes people in front of the camera. Like this was a film when I, I, I showed the people in the movie scenes before the film was done, which is not something I've ever done before.
0: So there are several figures from the past that obviously loom over today's story. Timothy Mayer, the Alabama slave owner who commissioned that ship uh, went to West Africa, kidnapped and enslaved all of these people. I have to wonder about the motivations for this. You know, this was an era where importing slaves was punishable by death, mm-hmm. but slaves were still being bought and sold in the United States. Correct. What was his motivation here? I mean,
2: I mean, I don't know him, so I don't really know, but I have a lot of really strong guesses based on historical research. And, you know, I think that he, this was like right before the Civil War and he was trying to say something about like the justness and importance of slavery. Like he was taking a stand to say like, well, we're going to stand up for these things. So I'm gonna. And also, I think he thought it was like a way to like evade the law and kind of finger to the government.
0: Yeah, it was like a lot of hubris. I mean, and you imagine a bet. I mean, yeah, is there, was bet, is there yeah. like evidence of that bet? I mean, that was what I was so curious about. It was like such there's a-
2: there's newspaper articles about it. Like, but also there's this like, OK, well, this is how I think about it, because like, I think there was probably was a bet, but I think it's also like part of the myth of the Old South where mm. it's kind of like, well, we're going to make this story even bigger to make it sound like make the lost cause seem even more romantic. You know, mm. I think in, in in certain minds that's seen that way and in other minds, it's seen as like disgusting.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting to hear about these People who were slaves for a relatively short period of time. Um, the other figure that obviously looms large here is Kajo Lewis. Can you talk about his influence in Africatown and you know his sort of leadership in that community and why he is such an important figurehead
2: there today? Sure. I mean, I think the reason that he was important was because he was like the last, like the last living slave, or thought of that. There's actually been someone named Matilda McCreer who is off the. Clotilda. that recently it's been revealed that she was, but this was, she's someone who was like, or I think she settled in Selma, but for all intents and purposes, like until very recently, he was known as the last living slave. And and so Zora Neale Hurston in 1929 came to Alabama and she recorded his stories about coming over on the Clotilda and his life in Africatown for a book called Barracoon, which didn't come out until 2019, which was sort of right after when we started making the film. So I think like to the community, like he's always been known as a leader, one of the sort of prominent five families. Like he was, there was actually two families, the last name Lewis, they're not related, but he's sort of known as the Kuja Lewis line. And there's also like the Charlie Lewis line. So basically like there's a few things, like one, he was just a leader in the community because a lot of people came in to talk to him from all over the world, but when Zora Neale Hurston did it, it, tur- it turned into a book. So I think as of late, like he's even more famous because this book came out and was like a New York Times bestseller. But back then, and if you ask people in the community before that, like Kujo was still this figure that everyone knew about. Like it wasn't it wasn't like in the community. It took the book to know that he was like a leader in the community and sort of someone everyone went to for advice and knowledge. Mm. Can you explain
0: why this book, Barracoon, was locked away for such a long period of time?
2: Yeah, well, um, there's a few reasons. One is that the book is written in dialect. In the film, there's descendants from Cujo Lewis and other people who are, who are Clotilde descendants reading from the book.
1: And I'm on page 92. Old Charlie, he the oldest one come from Africa soil. One Sunday after my wife left me, he'd come with all the others that come across the water and say, Uncle Cudjo, make us a parable.
2: It's written in in his dialect that is kind of a combination between English and his native language. And so I think Zora Neale Hurston felt very strongly about keeping it that way. And the publishers did not want to let her. So the book kind of languished on the shelf and never came out.
0: Hmm. So at the beginning of the documentary, we're sort of popped into this period of time where the search for the Clotilda is underway. Uh, Many of the descendants of the slaves from the ship are talking about what it would mean for them if it were to be discovered. One described it as, you know, as as if an adopted child were searching for their birth parents. Can you just talk about that connection that the community
2: felt to this to this ship? I mean, again, this is one of the things as a white person, like, you know, I do know where my family's from. Like mm-hmm. I, I did do my 23 Me, and it goes back really far. And I just can't imagine um, not having that connection. Like Kamal Siddiqui in the movie talks about African cosmology and talks about, you know, when you don't know where you're from, it's like wandering around lost. I think when I heard Vernetta talk about that, I I could feel it. It's like you keep searching and you searching and you're saying something is missing, something is missing. It's kind of like an adopted child. They keep searching for that birth mother, keep searching for that
1: birth mother. Well, that's in my inner soul. I'm searching for my
2: ancestry. And if I could put my finger on any part of it. I would feel more complete. Like the way she was explaining it, like I said before, this is like a community of these like incredible storytellers who've been passing down the story. And, you know, when you've been passing down a story for like 160 years through your family, like I think these the families get, like she's a really great storyteller. And I think like, I don't know, there was something about the way she told it and the way other people explain it. You can really feel it, like it it, it gets inside you. I don't know, that really moved me, like, when I, when I heard her talk about it. I knew that line would end up in the movie.
0: So we know that the Clotilda is an important part of Africatown's history, but when we meet descendant Joycelyn Davis, she has this moment where she turns and says, you know,
1: I don't want the momentum of the story to just be focused on the ship. It's not all about that ship. I get it. You know, it'll bring tourism and all those type of things. But how should I say this? I can care less about the ship.
0: And then you really zoom out and show us this much larger concern, which is this polluting industrial zone that has been encroaching on Africatown's land. Mm-hmm. Um, when you started making this film, did you know this was going to be a huge theme of the documentary and that this was going to
2: be a big pivot? I say I would say yes and no, because you can't go to Africatown and not feel it. You can smell the pollution. It, it gives you a headache. You can like hear. It's also like noise pollution. It's like really loud. There's buzzards going off next to residential homes like at all hours. We don't know what's in the ground, you know, around there. So like, yeah, I knew it was a huge thing. Also, there's all these like places that are zoned residential that there's industrial sites on these residentially zoned areas, which is like illegal. But no, everyone's just sort of ignored it. You know, the powers that be. I did know it would be a part of it. But that shot that you're talking about where you zoom out, I remember when, very early on it, when we were um, doing development on the film, we hadn't even gotten the money for it yet. I was driving down the driveway to Lewis quarters and you know, you're driving through on this like shell driveway through literally through an industrial lumber yard. That's like billowing smoke everywhere. Very loud, very smelly. And you're, you're um, and the air is kind of like thick with it. And you're driving into this like little hamlet. That's Lewis quarters. And I remember the whole group of us got really emotional. Everyone just like spontaneously started crying. And I remember that at that moment, I was like, how do I capture this smell and this? Like you can't have smell in movies, you know, like how do I capture this feeling of just like un- injustice that this even exists? That This like little historic neighborhood is surrounded by this pollution, you know, and it keeps coming. All this pollution, the, t- the last time I'd been down that road to Lewis Quarters, it wasn't that encroached at that point. And that was like, you know, 11 years before that. And I was like, what happened in the 11 years since, you know, it was, it felt so wrong mm-hmm. and just, and, and like, also just like common sense wrong. Like how could this even be? And you get down to the street and you see this little sign that says, welcome to Lewis quarters. And there's like flowers around it and Mardi Gras beads. And, and you're like, wow, like these people, the fact that they've hung on to this is incredible. In the mm-hmm. face of all this, like industry, just like sucking up all the land around them. So from that moment on, I was like, how do I get the shot that shows it? Yeah.
0: And then, of course, we realize the audience that it's Timothy Mayer's descendants for much of it that are still reaping the wealth of this land, these land holdings, you know, leasing them out to these industrial companies. Um, It really stands out as this example of intergenerational oppression. This is the family descendants of these slave owners still holding the power over this over this community of the descendants of the slaves that that their descendant captured. It's really incredible. Is that something that you knew when you were
2: looking at all, this landscape? Again, yes and no. I didn't know until I saw the zoning maps. I didn't really know the extent to which. But when you drive around Africatown, you see these signs everywhere that say Chippewa Lakes, and that's the mayor's land holding company. So you can see it like it'll be like land for lease, like, you know, in places where there's vacant lots. And so, Yeah, it's obvious that like, and I remember even back when I was making Order of Myths, there's a line in that movie that says the mayor's lease, they never sell land, they just lease it, they hold on to it. So, Mm. you know, I did know there was large, but I didn't know the extent to which.
0: So I want to talk about the discovery of the Clotilda. The wreckage was eventually found by a reporter named Ben Raines and his friend Joe Turner, an auto mechanic. Um, they reasoned that all the clues about the Clotilda's location were uh, misinformation. And I found it kind of fitting that it would take a journalist to realize that the powers that be here were all lying and misdirecting everybody. What did you think about
2: that? You know, he's an investigative journalist, so... Um Yeah, the the, the, the fact that him and Joe figured out that, that, like, you know, what Joe says, look where they tell you it's not, which is, I think, one of the best lines in the movie. It's pretty amazing. But also, I should say that, like, they were doing this. I mean, Ben, quote unquote, found it. But then the the people from Search and um, National Geographic, like, they were the ones who were able to do the research to validate it. So it's sort of a two parter.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about that timeline a little bit? Because I did look into that a little bit after watching your film, National Geographic and the other organizations come in and they say they're going to do this intensive search. But Rain's discovery had happened before that, right?
2: Well, they said they were going to do the search and then Ben Raines found it and then they came back and verified it, I think is right. the correct thing. But also, like, they came in after Ben, the No Tilda, the ship they found in 2018. Ben found a ship in 2018 that the community calls the No Tilda. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so the national, Nat, Nat Geo, I think came in after that. Yes. So, like, yes. Ben was, like, looking a little bit before that.
0: On the day the announcement that the Clotilda actually had been discovered, you know, we see even Joycelyn say, you know, I care about this maybe more than I thought I did. Mm -hmm. Was there a sense that things would change, that there was some sort of sense of change in the
2: air? I remember that day. It was like it was an amazing day.
1: They found the Clotilde. They found the Clotilde. They confirmed that it is the ship. I know it's on the news, but he's going out to the world today. We got to be all in
2: There were stirrings of it even before that day. Um, one of the descendants called me and said something is brewing. You need to get. Down. I was in. I think I was in New York working on a like a some other show and. And, um, I was, I was in New York working on a, a, another series and, you know, I'd been shooting on and off and, um, and he was like, you need to get down here. Some, something's about to happen. He didn't know what it was, but he could tell like all the, all the parties, like from, I think search and Nat Geo, they'd all like sort of showed up in town. And so I you know, I flew in, and um, we were the only like journalists or filmmakers or any kind of news outlet who was even there when they made the announcement, because I was kind of tipped off that something was about to happen. And so to be in the room that day was like such a privilege. And I remember just like I just saw Joycelyn like making all these phone calls, like she was calling everyone, and she was like, "This person, and I told the cameraman, I was like, "Just focus on her," because it was like chaos. And she's just like calling everyone, calling everyone. It, I don't know. It was it was a crazy, it was at this moment in history that I got to witness. I mean, it was, I felt so privileged to be in the room and to feel the potential of what could be.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing that you revealed to the viewers, first of all, we should mention, and I, I just can't stress like how unbelievable this was to me, is that the Clotilda was basically docked on the mayor's shoreline. Like it was right where they had dropped the, kidnapped people off they had just burned it and sunk it right there so it was yeah. right by their land and the mayors uh as was revealed by a journalist who uncovered this 1990s memo between augustus mayor the to his father and back and forth they apparently knew exactly where the wreck was mm-hmm. and they never told anyone despite the fact that they knew yeah. That this was something that the community really wanted to find. In fact, they
2: told people the exact opposite of where it like told. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So knowing that they knew and never said anything, I mean, I just found that to be stunning. Does the community know at this point that they knew and didn't say anything?
2: I mean, I think everyone sort of thought that, but no one knew, knew, you know, um, and I will say that, like, my dad is like, he considers himself kind of a man of the Delta or whatever. And the Delta being like the waterways in Mobile where, you know, he's a fisherman. And and I remember early on um, there was was sort of this mythos around the Clotilda because I remember early on sitting with one of the producers at our kitchen table in the house. Like this is really early. We're talking about it. My dad like walks by like he's making breakfast and he goes, oh, I know where that ship is. Mm -hmm. And I said, you do. And he goes, yeah, everyone knows. And I was like, well, if you know, then can you take us there? And then he backed down. He didn't know. He didn't know where it was. And I think there was this sense that everyone sort of just like it was almost like a a ghost story, a mythological thing where he claimed he knew where it was, but no one really knew. And even Emmett says the community thinks it's up that way in the movie. And he points to where it is. Like people sort of knew, but no one knew exactly. Right.
0: Right. So
2: the experts
0: who looked at the wreckage revealed that there was evidence that someone had tried to dynamite the wreckage in the past. Yes. And I'm wondering, can we draw a straight line between the mayors knowing where the wreckage was and someone trying to dynamite the wreckage? Do you think that those two things are connected? Because it's hard to not draw that conclusion.
2: He certainly he certainly thinks, too, since he, I think they were the only ones who knew exactly where it was. Right. Right. So National
0: Geographic is obviously known for its illustrations. They commissioned this rendering of what the Clotilda looked like based on the evidence that they found at the site. It included this cutout of the hold full of slaves. Yes, It seemed to take everybody's breath away in the room and it took my breath away as a viewer and the unveiling moment was difficult uh, really to watch and difficult to watch the reactions in the room and felt uncomfortable, frankly. I'm wondering what it
2: felt like in the room. Well, that's one of the moments when... The camera sees things that sometimes not all the people see, like the people, the white people, not all of them, because there were some corrections happening. I don't know how much of a spoiler I should be right now, but um, there's some very uncomfortable moments because some of the white leaders on the search to unveil the ship don't understand that how traumatic this image is, is to the descendants of the ship. And he unveils it like it's going to be this Christmas present, and that's not how it's received. Jim worked very closely with our artists at National Geographic to create a wonderful illustration
1: of that fateful voyage. Take a look at this. I wouldn't necessarily term it wonderful.
2: But yeah, in moments like that when you're filming, and I think... What sometimes can make documentary incredibly powerful is when the camera sees something that the people who are being filmed don't realize. Mm -hmm. And the disconnect is what makes things emotional. Mm -hmm.
0: So the mayors wouldn't engage with this story, uh, but a relative of Captain William Foster came to the celebration of the finding of the Clotilda. And you made us think an awful lot about what it means to be a descendant of the Clotilda, but. He tried to make us think about what it meant to be a descendant of those
2: slaveholders. Yeah.
0: What did you learn about that from being around him? I'm just curious.
2: Well, I think the fact that he's the only person who was brave enough to show up is important. Like, he showed up. To be able to um, come here and be welcome like this. My wife was, yeah. I
1: said, I wouldn't go if I wasn't told, then, you know. I've talked
2: to Darren, so I wouldn't have come down there if I was going to walk in that room and people are going to start throwing rocks at me. When he said that, um, it was a moment where we talked about it a lot in as a as an editorial and producing team, like because it's sort of a a moment that I think a lot of Black people get those kind of moments all the time. Well, my ancestors weren't all that bad, and mm-hmm. but the kind of cluelessness in that moment that he says it that that this could be painful to others, I thought was a really important moment for white people like me to see.
0: I mean, this is when they take him to the site and he brings up this family story that, you know, his descendant wasn't was kind to the slaves. Well,
2: actually, he says that because it's I think it's in Barracoon that like, um, yeah, it's not from his family stories. I don't think he knew that much about it. They said the way Cujo said the way they met William Foster treated him on the boat. I mean, obviously the conditions were unacceptable and degrading, but it sounded like
1: he still had some respect for them. He, what he said was, yeah, he said he was pretty, he's a good man. Well.
0: And there's this moment of quiet tension, and then, of course, uh, one of Kujo's descendants says, it doesn't matter whether you're a good master or a bad master, you were still a master.
1: Yeah, it's tough for me to make a qualitative difference in how you treat a slave, right? You go to the back, He's still a slave, and plus it's this investment, he's going yeah. oh, to... Yeah. Oh, yeah, he had an investment. investment. These people, Some of these people are going to be his, so... Yeah, yeah. A, a good master, a bad master is equally in my there. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that like the fact that he says it in that moment just says something about, you know, as white people, I think we want to believe that our ancestors, there was something good in them, even if they were doing something bad. I mean, that's what I take from it. You know, I told him before the movie came out at Sundance, I called him the night before that I was like, hey, this is like, a teachable moment for a lot of white people and it's in the movie and i left it in and he was like oh my god what did i say and i told him and you know he's been a big supporter of the film ever since he understands why i left it in
0: now it seemed that the discovery of the clotilda meant slightly different things to the city and city leadership and state leadership than it did to the direct descendants. Of the Clotilda, can you talk a little bit about that? That like
2: that difference and that tension. Sure. I mean, I think like the city sees um, tourist dollar signs and wants to reap the rewards of that. And also, the mayor of Mobile is someone who historically his family has owned a ton of land in Africatown, often land that he leases from the mayor family. And this is Mayor Stimson in Mobile. And I we tried to do an interview with him for four years, and he was always like, "Not this week, not next week," and. You know, we never really I I filmed him once doing um, a cleanup in Africatown that was almost like it seemed like kind of like a a media event. So we could just film him doing something positive in Africatown. I do. I do have hope that he will do the right thing and augment the work being done in Africatown. He did come to the screening in Mobile. Um, I think some people on his staff told him that he should go and see it, you know, so. It does seem like there is a certain openness to engage with it, whether or not these are for political reasons or for like reasons of justice. I have no idea. But, you know, he did come to the screening. And I guess coming back to your initial question, um, I think that, you know, that the community like someone's going to profit from the tourist dollars that are coming from the only slave ship ever found off the coast of North America that's off the coast of Africatown. And one would think, if there were any justice, that the people that were came over on that ship in the community that's you know come up around the the descendants of the Clotilda many of whom are not Clotilda descendants but live in that community um would hopefully benefit from this um mm. But it seems to be um that possibly just the way things are going and the way the city is responding, they want to run it all through them. And hire the the descendants to kind of like be spokespeople, but not pay them or anything. Or so far right. there's no one's been paid. So to me it's like that's looking like not the right message to me. But I again, know. like Kamal says in the movie, you know, looks to the community and says, What does justice mean to you? Like it's for the community to decide. But the way things have been going, I don't think it looks just. But I do think there's an opportunity to change that.
0: Yeah. Well, at one point uh, in the film near the end, you bring Kudjo's descendant Emmett Lewis to read passages from Barracoon at a plantation house. And he finishes the passage he's reading and then the camera stops, but the audio keeps going and captures his reaction to
2: what was happening. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that scene? Um, That's one of the first scenes we shot, actually. That was when I sort of realized. And I think that's a moment. So basically, you, you know, you said it's a plantation home, but. It is a plantation home. It's also a museum, and it's sort of interesting. One of the other characters in the movie, um, Herndon Eng, says like right in the scene right before that, he's like, you know, in the South, the losers. We still name things after the losers. Like in in Germany, they don't name they don't name things after Joseph Mingala, but in the South, we do. And mm-hmm. that's kind of setting up this scene with Emmett, where he goes to this place that's like basically for him a concentration camp, but yet it's a museum. I, I, what the, the reason of putting the scene with Herndon before is to sort of show that, that this is like, yo, this is mislabeled. Yeah. And so when he goes there and reads, like we, you know, we talked about what, what he was going to read and like how we all felt about it. But then when he actually got into the space, he was really overwhelmed with emotion. And I remember he started to cry and I, out of respect for him, whether this was the right decision or not, I will never know. But I said, we need to turn the camera off. Because I felt like he needed a moment to process. And I said, do you want to go into another room? And this is it okay if I record what your feelings are? And he said, yes.
1: But like right now, just walking through the door of that house, when I first opened that door, that big door outside, and looked at them paintings on the wall, you could just tell this place horrible. And maybe some good came out of this place, but most of it was evil. Most of it was. And, and that, that's what I feel about this.
2: Emmett is a very deeply spiritual person who he was 27 when we shot that. And I remember thinking just like, oh, my God, this person like really knows who they are and is so in touch with their feelings and so vulnerable. And I just so admired him in that moment that he was able to, like, talk about what he was feeling in in such a way that I, I just remember being very struck by it. And for a long time, because I had turned the camera off. It was dip, like, how do I use this? Because I remember thinking it's so emotional. It's so powerful what he says. And then my editor, Mike Block, was like, well, we should shoot it over water. Let's just say that not every partner thinks a long shot over water is like, well, you know, there were a lot of people who wanted to cut that. But I felt like the audience will get it. Leave it in. A
0: big theme at the end of the film is the fears uh, versus the hopes of what could happen after the discovery of the Clotilda to this community. Yes. We see Joycelyn visit the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., and get a very hopeful Mm -hmm. potential vision. Yes. And then we hear a lot about fears, too. Um, Yes. Is there a sense of hope in this community after the discovery of the Clotilda?
2: I think there's room for hope and fear. And like there's this is a complicated story. I mean, this is a very layered story with many threads. And and I think like for me, I'm always interested in stories that have many layers because I think that's where the truth lies is in complication. So, yes, I think there's both room for hope and room for fear because we see the city sort of refusing to let go of of like somehow controlling the narrative of the story but we also see the incredible tenacity of this activist community fighting back for 160 years. So it's a bit of a David and Goliath story, but I also think the film coming out on Netflix has had an effect. It's very interesting. Like, I don't know if this is related or not, but one would think it may be that the Canfor plant, the, the lumberyard, which is now owned by Canfor, historically owned by the mayor of Mobile's family, about a month before the movie um, launched on Netflix, when, you you know, people could have seen it at any festival where there's online ability, the plant suddenly closed and moved. It hasn't, mm. it's been there a very long time. I feel like, are they trying to get ahead of this? And then the mayor family, after years of silence, made a statement. Mm. So it seems like there is reason for hope, but there's also like, going to be a lot of money involved in this tourism. And if it happens, and, you know, the community itself is having a very like healthy, robust conversation about where the ship should go. What do we want for the community? And I've had the privilege of being party to some of those conversations Should the ship stay in the Delta, because if you raise it, will it disintegrate? there's a there's a an empty site where a housing project where many Clotel descendants used to live called Josephine Allen that's adjacent to historic Africa town. It's in Africa town, but it's not in the historic Africa town. It's now a huge empty lot, acres and acres of an empty area where a world class museum could go, you know, and that would allow for. The community to like remain intact, like people not gentrification not to occur, hopefully people for like able to maintain ownership of their homes. So there's like decisions to be made. And the the largely white Republican, not entirely, certainly there's there's a lot of black leadership in Mobile. But, you know, the powers that be that control the industrial complex around Africatown do they want to work with with the community or against them? Like, that still remains to be seen.
0: Well, Margaret Brown, I have to tell you, Descendant is one of the best documentaries I've seen in a really long time. It was incredibly moving, incredible story, beautifully done. Thank you so much for talking to me about
2: it. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you. Well, I'm ve- I was very inspired by the people I was filming. And I knew I was witnessing something that was living history. So the whole crew knew it. We all knew it as we were doing it. And it was a privilege to be able to even be let in the room.
0: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to Margaret Brown. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, TV, and more. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your audio. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.